right, hello, welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz. Uh, Adam, do you still need a wake-up call on Saturday there for the coronation? It's a hell of a time shift, eh? 4.30? <laughs> Am I calling you at 4.30? Is that... Well, no, you got to get up at 2.30 because the coverage starts at 3. Oh. Yeah. Is that? Yeah, like half of CTV is there, man. It's uh What well, I mean, what are we gonna, what are we not going to what are we going to do? Not watch the content? <laughs> they send up the newsroom there. We're not going to watch the content? Anyway, we'll wait wait for the abbreviated form, but <laughs> I'll watch it in 2 minute chunks on YouTube, yeah. All righty, open total if that <laughs> Just waiting for the eggs to hit the carrots. That'll be my, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Open Source is a CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show, and you can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be Galia Bravo, who is a board member for the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada. And we're going to talk about the very different state of abortion access here in Canada and the existence of crisis pregnancy centers and why they are not what you think they are. That is going to be at the bottom half of the hour. Before that, we're going to talk about a few news items from the last week, including Sudan. Violence has erupted in that besieged country again. And while the focus has been on getting Canadians out of harm's way, we're going to talk about what all the people left behind are facing but first, uh, the Alberta election has arrived. I unfortunately did not queue up the um, two unlimited music to celebrate the beginning of the, the beginning of the campaign. But it, it feels like we've been in campaign mode all year, just because of, uh, I, I guess, the, the the giantness of everything. Everything in Alberta is bigger. Um, but yeah, it, it's finally here. One month. Uh, four weeks, and uh, it's finally the clash of Danielle Smith versus Rachel Notley. Although, interestingly, you know, it's interesting. This is, I mean, first of all, it's kind of like a two-person race, even though there are many different political parties in Alberta. But it's also interesting that this is a two-woman race. Yeah, which is un- not, it shouldn't be unusual, but it is. Mm-hmm. And yeah, as you were saying, with there are other parties, but of course, the way we frame things here and in other places, it's just, oh, it's the, the showdown. The showdown is finally happening between these two. <laughs> Nothing about the Buffalo Party or the Wild Roses or whoever the heck is left. Alberta Party. And that's significant, actually, because the Alberta Party, I think, drew, decide, not decided some writings, but one of those, if you take these, the classic, if you take close writings, and if that you would think if that party didn't exist, it would go a certain way. Mm-hmm. There was a little bit of that, and they're kind of similar to the reform days, where reform was was kind of siphoning votes away from the conservatives. Because mm-hmm. all the other, not all of them, but most of the alternative parties in Alberta are conservative or lean that way. Some further than others. You mean like the pro life party? The pro life. <laughs> No question there who they belong to. Yeah, yeah. But then, of course, there's smaller groups such as Take Back Alberta. I wouldn't say smaller, but non-official. Mm-hmm. We're effectively a wing of the UCP now. Mm-hmm. And there was a little bit of 
uh, action, I guess, out of the gate there um, yesterday, which was Tuesday for us. Mm-hmm. Um, the decision came down from uh, Palowski. Mm-hmm. And that was, he was convicted on, I think it was common mischief was one, but he was also convicted on the, I can't even remember the exact charge, but it was from a law that was put forth by the UCP. Oh yeah, the Defense of Critical Infrastructure Act. I knew you would know. See, that's why I didn't (laughs) write it down. Defense of Critical Infrastructure. He was convicted on that. I'm not sure if he was sentenced yet. I don't believe so, no. On Tuesday, the UCP campaign, at least the Daniel Smith part of it, went pretty quiet. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely to avoid having to address that or answer any questions about that at all. That's not to say that it won't come up when you ask mm. her one question, which is a policy that was implemented before the election even started. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it's a little bit shaky out of the gate for Smith. I mean, it's all of the polls so far suggest that it's a neck and neck race with the UCP having a slight advantage, but then there's certain areas such as the areas that decide these things are generally around Calgary and Edmonton. I heard described as the donuts. Mm-hmm. So the urban centers generally will go NDP progressive vote. And then there's this transitionary area between the sea of blue that you always see. That's all it's misleading because <laughs> it doesn't represent population. It's just these giant swaths that will always, always go conservative. So that is where likely where this is going to be determined between the cities Calgary and Edmonton as to where votes will be able to be drawn from to get the majority of what is it 44 is the magic number this 44 time. yeah yeah the the 338 analysis seems to paint a I mean a kind of a dire picture I mean if you're kind of hoping the UCP gets gets handed a loss um so the way they're pointing it out is that there's an 80% chance for UCP majority, a 20% chance for the NDP majority. On the other hand, though, um, somebody online pointed out that 338 famously predicted a, a likely Wild Rose minority victory in 2015, which is the one where uh, Rachel Notley NDP won that election. Um, of course, that was sort of famously flubbed near the the one yard line by Jim Prentice. Um, basically telling his voters that they're to blame for the the province's fortunes. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It, the, the the I mean, leaving those hard numbers aside, the the anal- what the analysis painted is that you know it's likely uh forty seat uh forty two seats are likely to go UCP um versus uh thirty seats that are likely to go NDP, which leaves about you know, eight, uh, eight to 10 to 14 that are kind of toss-ups. And essentially the NDP have to win every single one of those toss-ups if they want to form like the barest margin government. And yeah, in this case, you know, you have the Alberta party, you have the liberals, liberals only running 12 candidates, weirdly enough, uh, less than the greens, but you know, every vote counts and you have to be wondering just what kind of, um, maybe on the ground stuff you have uh ndp activists sort of organizing like you know do you really <laughs> you hate to phrase it this way do you want to waste your vote on the alberta party or the greens or the liberals when you know we can kick daniel smith and the ucp to the curb um 
especially after you know things like the Pulowski uh, interference and you know press progress dug up some old tape of Daniel Smith talking on the Western Standard about how um, you know the Freedom Convoy if the Freedom Convoy wins we all win and and that kind of jive. It's you know it, it's going to be a, a really tight one in the margins, and uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, or, or fortunately, depending on how you want to watch these things, um, the the fringe uh, parties, which in this case does include the liberals, um, are mm-hmm. are going to play an outsized role, I think, in what who who gets who gets to form government on this one. Yeah, and as you said, every vote does count, so. Mm-hmm. I mean, out of the gates, Smith is going in that direction of, well, trying to um, control the you know, press conferences and whatnot, but it's the usual of taxes, law and order. The arena deal, which was, did we talk? I feel, I feel we've talked about that. Maybe we did, but not on, mm-hmm. not on Mike about the, the arena deals in uh, Calgary for a, a new brand new arena that something another again digging up old tape of of daniel smith <laughs> saying that she would never ever do mm-hmm. is now doing it but it's on the condition that the ucp get elected and form the government right so it's like hmm. <laughs> how about that yeah and i mean notley it's interesting in that the story is that no premier has ever made a comeback after being unelected uh, at all except once i think it was in quebec duplessis maybe mm-hmm. so they made the government were gone for a bit and then came back and said that's never happened with the, with the premier anyway mm-hmm. a premier has never bounced back between elections ever in canada just that one time mm-hmm. <clears throat> so and duplessis and notley are obviously light years apart and generations apart now at this point but <clears throat> that's difficult to overcome too because i think it's very canadian to decide that people have had their day yeah but, the, the thing with Notley is that she has tons of experience. Mm-hmm. If I understand it right, she is the longest running MPP in M- MLA. MLA. MPP? MLA. Oh, that's why they call them MLAs. Yeah. We're the weirdos who we're the weirdos who call our provincial can't our provincial members MPPs in Ontario. It's like a degree, your MLA. She's got her yeah. MLA. Yeah. It has been yeah. for a long time. That's right. So she has that going for her. Smith never had, you know. She didn't win the premier's seat. So yeah. there's that. She didn't, yeah. you know, she has has to prove herself yet. Uh, and it, we'll figure it, it'll become clear pretty quickly, I think, in the next couple of weeks where it's going to go. But yeah, like she, trying to stay the course out of the gate, but yet these, these shaky things keep surfacing. And I want you have to wonder how much else is out there, how much else is hiding. But I, she, I heard there was one, I don't know the MLA's name, with a UCP apologizing for like every tweet she had ever made. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like i apologize i go blanket apology for anything that i've ever said ever it's like it doesn't really work that way because if there's some something in there that's like egregious <laughs> it's not going to help you you need yeah. to delete your account and even that might not help because you can bet that it's it's all being combed through there are people that are dedicated to combing thoroughly through your social media record to see what's there so well you're right it's like the Take Back Alberta Party, for for instance, or not, they're not a political party, but they're a group, the Take Back Alberta group, who were like so fundamental in getting rid of Jason Kenney and uh, hoisting up Danielle Smith. Like that's a liability now. This is a general. You can't kind of rely on that grassroots support because 
there's a plurality of the electorate that thinks those people are nuts. And the question is, can Daniel Smith put on the veneer of like normal, rational, fiscal conservatism to get across the finish line? Because I was looking at past poll numbers, you know, between you know, the summer of 2021 when Kenny was getting slammed and I was like the sum like the, the I can't remember what he called it. But it's like the those we're back summer, you know, the best summer ever. I think oh, that's yeah, what yeah. it was. Um, and when it turned it like when COVID infections were everywhere. And then uh between then and about the middle of, of 2022 when Kenny was out and um the leadership contest was on like the 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 ndp were consistently high and like doing like Mm -hmm. nine points better than the ucp and the polls or 11 points like double digits um so the ndp have been there and it seems to be when the upc ucp is at like sort of peak chaos well there's nothing more chaotic in politics than an election campaign the question is i guess um can how chaotic can things get and uh <laughs> do they get chaotic enough to make you know people who i guess would hold their nose and vote smith um decide instead to hold their nose and vote notley to get serious though uh we have to look to africa and you've probably seen a lot in the news about you know trying to get canadians and uh, other foreigners out of sudan uh, you don't hear a lot about what is actually going on in the ground in Sudan. And it, it's like, it's complicated, um, but also kind of scary. I can't imagine what it's like for people living there right now. But essentially, uh, Sudan's been in this state. I'm going to try and boil this down to its like basic bones, which is going to be incredibly difficult. So hold on. Mm-hmm. Basically, uh, there was a military coup in the fall of 2021. Uh, since then, it's been kind of this back and forth between the military dictatorship and people who want to take over as a civilian provisional government. Um, And every time they kind of get close to a deal, something happens. And this is one of those times where something happened back in the end of February. There's a faction called the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, who were kind of used by the the previous um, president of Sudan as a kind of, um, well, I, 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 Secret police, I guess, would be it. Basically, they would do the dirt, which would include like breaking up protests and attacking his p- political enemies, and and attack. And also, he used them as a like an expeditionary force. They've been deployed to Yemen and different places, South Sudan, which is an entirely different country now. But there was a question about how integrating these people, some of whom have been accused of war crimes, by the way, into the regular Sudan forces. Um there's been some friction on that part and RSF seems to have gone rogue and started attacking areas in Darfur, which is an area that uh, hasn't really known peace in 20 years. Um, also in the, uh, the capital city, um, it, it's just kind of a mess where you essentially have two fractions of the Sudanese army now battling one another. And as always caught in the middle are the people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I just happened to see before airtime that it is kicking off in the Darfur region now, which is to the west. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not just in Khartoum anymore, not just in the capital. But yeah, it's uh, 
it it was predicted that this was going to happen eventually because in just going back a bit further to 2019 there was mm. the, it was sort of let's call it arab spring style protests in which people were like we we want civilian government which made um omar al-bashir the previous mm. military dictator for third uh, probably about 30 years i think it was yeah late 80s came to power so of course in that between 2019 and now it was like it's like anything it's like the well the military will be like oh we'll we'll take care of it and then and then they don't and now it's it's not exactly a civil war because isn't the citizens fighting each other yet mm-hmm. it's just two factions of the the junta either they are pretty much the junta yeah um and sudan is one of those unfortunate places well it's suffered from years of of you know colonial interference and being run the colonial style classic imperialism but and it it's been hard for them to leave that behind We're, weirdly the current there's a ceasefire right now i'm not even sure if it's whole i bet a, it's probably not holding it was supposed to be for a week that was negotiated by south south sudan mm-hmm. which is one of the newest countries in the world uh still not recognized by everyone but it's this well obviously the name reveals it's this, the southern border uh, sudan is in this position where it's kind of surrounded by other countries who all have certain interests <laughs> uh i mean you name it but there's there's also interest from further afield uh the wagner group if that rings a bell mm-hmm. the russian wagner group which are probably the equivalent of the uh, rsf in russia these days oh, around a sure. gold mine that was arranged by the other uh under the al-bashir regime mm-hmm. so there's Sudan is a place that should be, they've got plenty of resources, which of course is some of what's being fought over. Uh, it, it's arable land. It, it should be one of those places where like this, this is an idyllic place, mm-hmm. but because there is so much of this, uh, these other concerns that are involved, uh, Egypt supposedly sides with the military, the Emirates, United Arab Emirates siding with the RSF, the Saudis kind of playing both sides. Then, of course, further afield, U.S., European Union, U.K., all of interests, like I mentioned, Russia. Mm-hmm. All of that can only, unless there's certain agreements in place or a, you know, a solid government of some form, uh, leads to this, you know, incidents such as this is what's going on right now, right? Yeah, and I'm you know, an incident. Sorry, that's that's <laughs> total understatement. I shouldn't have said that. It's yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's effectively going to spiral out of control. I mean, it's it's a civil war. It just yeah. the, the people haven't been given the opportunity to take a side yet. It's everyone's kind of jockeying for position. Um, RSF seems to have been less like. I, I guess I guess the thought was like, well, we're not getting what we want, so we'll just you know take it, or we'll do what we want, or we'll separate. You know, we'll go back to the good old Al-Bashir days where we'll just like separate off and run our own little fiefdom in the Darfur area. And, you know, um, their, their general, Mohammed uh, Hamdan uh, Dagallo, who, you know, is basically the Wagner, Wagner group is making him rich um, by uh, by the their mo- their gold mine. Um, he's obviously thinking he's maybe a. I mean, he's probably not interested in running the country. He's perfectly fine and happy and wealthy and powerful with without even running a country. So, yeah, th- there, there's, there's a lot of inputs um, that have nothing to do with the Sudanese going on there. And I mean, and it's worse than you think. You, you know, you're you're talking about like the the things that make Sudan sort of appealing. Um, 
there are things that are affecting the country that have also have nothing to do with uh, resources. Well, it has to do with resources, but not necessarily resource extraction or exploiting the resources. Sudan's on the front line of the climate crisis. Um, they're seeing wild swings in in heat and dryness, and then it rains, and it doesn't just rain, it floods. Uh, there was a flood in late 2020 that... Um, Oh, where's my numbers here? 770,000 people were affected by the flood. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, uh, it was so dry there that there was a terrible locust infestation. Um, things aren't great in Ethiopia, which is right next door to Dar- uh, to Sudan in the east. Apparently, there's a refugee crisis there, like 70,000 refugees fleeing Ethiopia um, coming into Sudan as well. Uh, you have... Um, all these colonial interests, but you know, even the things that are supposed to help Sudan, like IMF and World Bank, um, you know, pausing any involvement in the Sudan, they're supposed to get about $23 billion worth of their debt canceled or eliminated or written off or however that works. That's not happening now. Um, also, they have an inflation rate. I mean, it's bad enough you live in a war zone, but like 236.4% inflation. Yeah, you know, like we think we have inflation problems. And also yeah. tying this back to Russia as well. Apparently they get most of their wheat exports from Russia. So guess who's not ex- like really exporting wheat right now because then they're they're in the middle of their own war. Mm-hmm. So I mean it's just a myriad of problems. It's it's just so funny. Well, not funny, haha, but funny that, you know, this country that we're kind of only paying attention to because there's a story about can, you know, Canadian government competency in evacuating people from a war zone in a timely manner. Um, but you see all these, you know, sort of tentacles from other world crises sort of affecting this one place that unfortunately aren't being a part of the story, which is why we wanted to talk about this. Mm-hmm. I think that is the concern is it may kick off a chain reaction mm-hmm. among the countries mentioned, like Ethiopia and Chad is another one in the West. Yeah, uh, Libya are involved. They're a little bit further away too, and Egypt. So it's just this whole. It, it was once uh, Anglo-Egyptian, right? It was. It was a uh, going back to the extreme colonial days. Let's call it. it was run by <laughs> uh, a consortium. Let's say it, so. There, there is a long history there, and that and that's the complications. Like you were saying, there seems to be this oversimplification of saying it's a battle between African and Arab, but that's not that's not the only line that is that is some of it too there is mm. uh tribal issues there is uh religious issues uh but there's also you know the the overarching paramilitary issues and whose side you're on who has weapons and where are they coming from mm. sometimes from the other countries most of the time from the other countries so it's it's all just kicking off again and it it you were talking a bit about the um the drought the three world food program workers were killed Right. Just last week on the weekend. So that's the situation is getting from bad to worse. The uh, Medicine Sans Frontier have, have pulled out. And their official there said something interesting. It was, it was, you know, don't regard this conflict as something that you're not really connected to or something like that. It was like, you, it's not as if this exists separate of everything. It's like, if this blows, it's going to be bad. Mm-hmm. Just not in, in terms of everything, but particularly uh, civilian suffering and starving mm-hmm. people as you said because there's this there's there's a lot of back and forth between the countries there in terms of uh refugees and where are they to go and of course some of the other countries outside of sudan uh, as with anywhere is like well we don't really want to take anybody else right um, so and conversely going the other way too and and um 
almost called her Angelina Jolie. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen. Melanie Jolie is in Nigeria. Is that right? I just yeah. saw that before airtime. So yeah. was that to kind of help out with the effort and moving people or. Yeah. It, it they seem sh- a bit subpar. I don't, it is difficult in a war zone, but yeah, uh, there's it, it's, I don't think it's something that we're doing very well these days. People are getting out, but I, as far as I understand, there's still lots of uh, Canadians, Canadian nationals waiting to get out if they will get out a la Afghanistan. Right? Well, there, there are a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of legitimate questions about how well um, the Canadian forces are situated in terms of people and material to do these kinds of like emergency evacuations. And um I mean, that's a big question. I think that's going to have to be answered at some point because here we are again, you know, um, I don't want to say getting caught with our pants down, but certainly without the ability to pull our pants up in a timely manner. Um, And I I need Anand's line was she kept saying there there are resource resources in the area or something. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't mean anything. What's in the area? Are they in the area of Africa? Like, where are they? Right. So. Right, and this is this is something that I think Justin Trudeau has to confront because he wants he, he wants to do things that everybody nobody'll get mad at him about. And so he, you know, right. he has a choice to, you know, are you you can fund the military, you can buy new equipment, you can go on a a recruitment campaign and, and get people in the kitty and forces get them trained so that when something like this happens, you're able to respond. On the other hand, he's probably going to honk off a lot of people because it's, you know, military recruitment. And we know that there's a certain constituency in Canada that doesn't like that idea. So, you know, th- there, there's a, a Canadian politics side to this that I still that has that has to be worked out in course. But in, in the meantime, if there aren't foreign people there to help, there's no reason for foreign governments to want to help Sudan either. And I think that's probably going to be uh, the biggest crushing blow. We, we all went in there and we all got our guys out and we've, we've left the Sudanese to, to suffer in the meantime. Um, yeah. Okay, well, we'll have to leave that there. Chances are we'll return to it at some point in the near future. In the meantime, we're going to bring it closer to home and talk about abortion rights here in Canada. You are listening to Open Sources Guelph. You're on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I think that may have covered our CanCon quota for probably the rest of time. (laughs) That's from a 2003 album called Beautiful, a tribute to Gordon Lightfoot, who we lost this week at the age of 84. The band, you know them well, the Tragically Hip, and the song from Lightfoot's uh, woke period, maybe in the 60s, was called Black Day in July. I don't know if Lightfoot was politically involved, but he was quiet about it. Mm. It's coming out now how involved he was. Mm-hmm. But in terms of outright statements, that was probably in the 60s, Black Day in July probably is up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're losing all our gourds. Gord Downey, Gordon Lightfoot, Gordon Vincent, 
Mm-hmm. And weirdly, that photo of all three of them is making the rounds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which Gord, Gordon Lightfoot painted. Mm-hmm. That's making the rounds too. But yeah, it's uh, it's definitely coming for the musicians this decade. So, oh, it's yeah. so depressing. I don't know, but yeah, of so a certain cool. era anyway. Let's say. Yeah. Well, this will cheer us up. Abortion. Um... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was, it was. I was going for the joke. I was going for the joke. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada and uh, the BC Humanist Association were trying to raise awareness about something called crisis pregnancy centers, which are essentially these groups that are tied to churches or like action groups like Right to Life, where they look like abortion clinics or they look like women's health clinics, but they're actually there to actually not help women and pregnant people get an abortion. So obviously, if you're part of the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada, you are deeply concerned about this. And so we have someone, a board member from the ARCC. Her name is Galia Bravo, and we talked to her about this and uh, just generally about uh, abortion issues and abortion access here in Canada, and especially in the light of a lot of the stuff going on in the United States. And I think the picture we wanted to draw is that um, abortion isn't in danger of being made illegal here in Canada like it is in some place in the United States, but we still have tremendous barriers in terms of access to that particular medical service. And so let's hear more about that from Galia, who we talked to before this week's show. Okay, Galia Bravo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Adam. Uh, first, just kind of in a general way, can you describe, I, I guess, for pro-choice activists, what the, I guess, the atmosphere in Canada is like right now? We see things getting like really superheated in the United States, which is why one of the reasons why we have you on today. But I mean, here in Canada, what's what's the situation? Yeah, thanks for your question. Um, we have very different systems in Canada than we do in the United States. And I think that there was some really um, sort of intentional fear stirring uh, in Canada when Roe v. Wade was overturned. Um, you know, we don't have as strong of an anti-choice um movement in Canada because uh, our abortion rights are really entrenched in our charter rights. So a lot of the anxiety, fear, um, hubbub (laughs) that (laughs) happened around um, the overturning of Roe v. Wade was sort of a cultural one. Um, As activists, we continue to work locally. We continue to work with our, um, you know, pro-choice organizations to ensure that we're talking about things like stigma, access, um, and safety of people seeking abortions, inclusive of uh, really diverse identities of people seeking abortions, which is not actually so much of the discourse in the U.S. because people are just afraid that they're not going to be able to access really critical health care. Um, so in Canada, we we have this really close link with the U.S. that um, really guides our conversations in our media, but we are also really hoping to comfort people and and let them know that the chaos is is there. And here we can continue to do the kind of activism we've been doing for for a long time with with some really important successes. Yeah, we we kind of live in this bizarre situation where we don't really have... uh... 
it, it doesn't really look like we're on our the road to like have the same fate as the United States where abortion is banned. On the, on alternatively though, we're not really on a road where we're talking about expanding access either. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. I think so much of um, the work that we are doing um, is around access to uh, rural communities, access to folks uh, in the East Coast um, because of our system that has abortions being done in clinics as well as hospitals. There's there's so much to tease out there around what access actually means um, and what free and safe abortions look like in, in Canada. All right. Well, let's get to sort of the primary topic that uh, we were going to talk about today, which is crisis pregnancy centers, which on the surface doesn't sound so bad, but uh, you know, you, the, the abortion rights coalition of Canada, the BC humanist uh, association are, ha- have some very deep concerns. So let's start with talking about what is a crisis pregnancy center. A crisis pregnancy center is an organization that often is linked to church groups uh, or sometimes just religious um, interests. And they profess to be there to offer all of the um, sort of solutions to unwanted pregnancy to people who are seeking abortions. But in reality, what we found is that they um, spread misinformation Uh, They contribute to abortion stigma. And in fact, they're really deceptive about their intentions because many of them do not even offer um, to like referrals to places where someone could get an abortion. So imagine you're, I don't know, under 18 and you're really fearful because you're pregnant and you Google where do I get an abortion or how do I get an abortion? Mm -hmm. They're the first five things that pop up. And they use the word that we also use when we talk about pro-choice clinics or um, organizations or activist groups like abortion, like um, holistic care. Uh, They profess to do counseling and these kinds of things. But really what they're doing is making you fearful about the possible impacts of getting an abortion. And they often really push um adoption as your best choice uh so these crisis pregnancy centers actually do a lot of harm and in fact they're very hard to spot as well Uh, even to us we have a um we have a list of crisis pregnancy centers and anti-choice groups in canada and sometimes it's really hard to form those links when we do we're doing those research like endeavors (laughs) because it's not always super transparent um there's kind of a lot to unpack there i guess one of the things is um when you talk about like holistic practices and and and, you know kind of selling this to 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 women i you know obviously people have concern about going into like a cold sterile clinic and so anything that kind of sounds like an alternative to that where you can still get a similar service could could be appealing to some women or, or pregnant people. Yeah, uh, I definitely think that that's one of the ways that they lure uh, someone mm-hmm. seeking abortion uh, to their their organization. I guess you could call them right. Um, but in fact, they don't actually offer the things that they talk about offering. So um, to say that you have a holistic practice. 
um, is not really the case if you're telling people that abortion has a link to breast cancer. Right. Um, we did find that a percentage of the crisis pregnancy centers do share this kind of information. And that not medically supported information is completely the opposite of what an abortion clinic might do in Canada, which does actually offer a sort of non-sterile, um, non-clinical alternative to hospital abortions because they do do uh, post-abortion support work. They do talk about contraception. Uh, they do talk about sexual health in general and are on the way to becoming a lot more gender inclusive than, um, for example, hospitals that would still very much refer to your uh, body in those sort of clinical terms. Right. Abortion clinics are rarely abortion-only clinics. Exactly. And I imagine part of this, too, is not giving you exactly what you get when you, you know, go to a crisis pregnancy center. Once you're kind of in the door, that, that makes it kind of much harder for the person to leave once they go through that door. Yeah, and, and we do see so much stigma around abortion still. We still talk about, um, we give caveats to why we're anti-choice, but there could be a situation. Like, we, we don't actually think of abortion as just flat-out medical care. Right. And in that way, it is interesting that we do support uh, abortion clinics because, in general, we don't actually talk about really specific holistic like medical treatments in, in sort of private clinics. But um, I think that we do want to understand that even if you're a supporter of abortion, even if you're confident in your choice and you end up at a crisis pregnancy center and you are told all of this misinformation about the fact that a fetus feels pain or that, um, you know, you might not be able to get pregnant again. It plants the mm -hmm. seed and it really does contribute to um, the societal stigma that we feel. And then going to another place, feeling like you're shopping for abortion clinics, all of these things can really be challenging to someone, even if they're really confident in their choice. Yeah, we don't really do that comparison shopping for any, I mean, for any medical service. Like mm -hmm. we don't go to the dentist and go, well, you sound okay, but I would think I want to get it. Second opinion from another dentist. Um, in the this this kind of stood out to me. Canada is the only place that has crisis pregnancy centers as kind of like a, 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 a I guess a thing. I actually don't know if that's the case. Okay. Um, but they are unregulated. That's right. That's correct. So I could open a crisis pregnancy center tomorrow. Exactly. Theoretically. Theoretically, yes. And you also could probably find funding pretty readily because there are anti-choice organizations and anti-choice politicians. And uh, there is sort of a strong presence in Canada as well that doesn't have a ton of recourse other than targeting the people themselves who are seeking abortions because we haven't really seen strong anti-abortion legislation really happening. It's the fear-mongering. It's the, um, you know like really graphic imagery that they share on the sidewalk. It's the discourse right. around abortion and the real like shame that they instill on people who would like to end their pregnancies. That is their, you know, the strongest in Canada and, and people want to support that, unfortunately. 
Right, because we were talking about this before we started recording. A lot of anti-abortion groups in Canada are very, very well funded. There's money to burn, but there's no legislative agenda like there is in the United States where, you know, you could set up an LLC and go to some random Texas judge and he can take away mythoprisone for the entire country. You know, there's there's a ton of money, but they, you know, (laughs) there's very little in terms of like productively taking away abortion rights that they can put that to. Exactly. So to speak. Yeah. And so much of the funding question around abortion is really like, you know, institutional political choices. Um, One of the things that we see as a lack of access is, um, you know, rural people seeking abortions, having to travel long distances to a city to go to a hospital where you may face actually abortion stigma. You may see a doctor who is judgmental or who dissuades you from getting an abortion or who might not um, acknowledge your gender identity and make it not a safe space for you to have a procedure. And which is one of the reasons why we really do support abortions happening in clinics. However, for example, in New Brunswick, the province does not allow for clinics to be funded by governments, although um, healthcare is administered by provincial governments. And then what the federal government does is just penalize them by cutting a portion of their uh, healthcare transfers. And mm. so essentially they're taking away funding for healthcare because they're not providing healthcare in a way that we've sort of agreed upon uh, as a country. And that again, penalizes the people seeking abortions New Brunswick is not give, uh, offering that funding anyway. So it's that coordination that's challenging. It's that sort of political world that is hard to understand, that is not very transparent in and of itself. And that's why it's so hard to really know which node of power, I guess, to really um, push to find the kind of access that we're looking for. But you brought up the abortion pill, and this is really widely recognized as one of the you know, leaps towards access for for all people seeking abortions. Right, because it's uh, kind of doesn't require any infrastructure other than uh, having a doctor on hand who gives out medication. Exactly. Yeah, the thing we're kind of maybe dancing around that I want to kind of attack directly is you you talked about how you could get government funding to to start one of these clinics. Um, That makes me wonder, like, does that take money away from, I mean, not just medicals, genuine medical services, but also other community groups that might be doing like sort of other good work in the realm of supporting women or, or people of different gender identities or just like the general community? Like, are we funding these things? I guess funding was essentially a political message. Yeah, that, so there's two things there, I think. The First, we'll talk about the sort of politicization of abortion. And we talk so frequently about wanting to depoliticize. So we Mm -hmm. don't want abortion to become a uh, election topic. We don't want uh, the liberals to run on an abortion message, but then have to sort of pass a law that gets amended, that has to find a middle ground, um, Mm -hmm. that that gets legislated. We don't want to legislate something that is already considered um, part of our medical care. In, in the Canada Health Act. So we do want to depoliticize, but understand that the money comes from political sphere. So those two things should be um, you know, 
inanely uncoupled because I know you can't do that, but we still, we still really, really want to stress the fact that um, abortion should not be an election issue, right. uh, that it is um, decided upon health care that is protected and that we still need to pressure our members of parliament and that we still need to have a list of our anti-choice MPs. Mm-hmm. In terms of funding clinics as sort of a an additional um, healthcare provider, mm-hmm. other than just having um, abortions happen in hospitals, it's interesting because um, abortions are done differently in hospitals often than they are done in clinics. So mm-hmm. in a hospital, they will give you general anesthetic. Whereas mm. in an abortion clinic, they can give you local anesthetic. And that tends to cost taxpayers a lot more money if people are being given general anesthetic to get an abortion. Right. Um, moreover, um, in hospitals, you don't get the sort of aftercare that you would get in a medical clinic. So there's, you know, if there's complications, uh, then you have to go directly back to sort of the emergency room, for example. Um, whereas if you're at a uh, abortion clinic, they have practice, they have um, an understanding of how the body might react and then can support in a way that is not just putting you through the same system that everyone else is going through. A lot of um, general practitioners also don't learn abortions. Um, mm. It's something that you can learn electively. It's not actually required. So in an abortion clinic, you have people who know how to do abortions, who have practiced abortions, whereas looking for an abortion in a hospital takes a long time. You get put on wait lists, and then sometimes the actual weeks that you can access an abortion in a hospital are shorter than a clinic. By the time that you've gotten to your turn, uh, it's too late. And you know we all know that that actually does lead to more stress on healthcare systems. Right. And there are even hospitals that don't offer sort of elective abortion services, too. Yeah. I know that Guelph General um, here doesn't. I guess this is the other part of this, too. If you're a woman and you find yourself looking for abortion services and you, you know, because of the, I guess, the wishy-washy way these <laughs> these things um, are are sort of defined and how you can sort of happen into something just by googling it for for women who find themselves accidentally inside a, a crisis pregnancy center instead of an honest to god women's clinic or abortion clinic mm-hmm. um what, what's what's the likely outcome for for her or them um if you're talking like purely statistically yeah. i actually don't know what you know, percentage of people would go to a hospital and get an abortion part of that is because um reporting on these types of things is very private considering right. the fact that people who administer abortions can be um, targeted by anti-choice groups. Um, also the fact that people who get abortions often do not self-report because of the stigma. People do not like to talk about it. People keep it hush hush um, as this sort of understood secret that most people who can get pregnant at some point may have an unwanted pregnancy. Um, so I don't know hard data for you Um, but I can share that um, it will extend the gestational period like if you go to a crisis pregnancy center and they tell you misinformation and they've you know 
talked about something that called post-abortion distress that sounds mm. like it could be a medical psychological term, but is in fact not acknowledged as something that is real by science. It will extend the amount of time that you are pregnant, uh, even if you do go on to seek an abortion at a hospital or with a crisis pregnancy, or sorry, with a um, at an abortion clinic. And, uh, you know, that's, that's never what we, we want people to be able to access abortions when they want in a you know, free and safe way. It almost sounds like it's a con. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and it's so interesting too, because what they really want, I mean, I, I shouldn't say what, that I know what crisis pregnancy centers really want, but right. so much of their um, discourse is around adoption and, that is a whole other thing that is something that is um, complicated and um, has all other kinds of activism happening around it. And these crisis pregnancy centers don't then facilitate your adoption process. Um, and it's really um, challenging to see that these crisis pregnancy centers are making people feel bad for wanting to end a pregnancy and then also not supporting them in, you know, the postnatal care, for example, or um, if you can't afford a child at the moment and they are not, you know, raising money for you to help um, with, you know, the cost of vaccines or whatever the case may be. So um, that's, you know, one of the things that I think is really challenging about these uh, CPCs is what their promise is, like you said, is, is not, really based in anything because they're not actually providing support past that right so i guess looking at potential solutions and and uh, is, is the goal here sort of to maybe get to the point where we're right re- like not banning obviously but like regulating making you know crisis pregnancy centers like identify sort of what their ideology is and what they're trying to do or is maybe the goal to and maybe it doesn't have to be two separate goals but Maybe the other goal is to make sure women are better educated about how you identify what is a legit abortion clinic and what is something else. 100%. I think both of those goals um, are very much aligned with pro-choice activist visions. Uh, We certainly want to regulate CPCs. Um, Also, anti-choice groups and CPCs really go along um, with each other, and we want to ensure that anti-choice groups do not aren't given charitable status um, because once you are given charitable status, you can move money around a Mm. lot easily. Um, And we want to not have this sort of binary of pro-choice, anti-choice, two sides of the debate. We really want to identify the fact that CPCs and anti-choice organizations are coming after what we consider to be human or charter rights um, to access the kind of uh, medicine that we can in Canada. And to your second question, uh, or to your second point rather, we want to sort of take off a bit of the veil of secrecy, of not talking about um, abortions, not being able to openly um, question what we're um, seeking, accessing, not feeling shy to tell a doctor or general practitioner that we are wanting to end a pregnancy, not feeling shy to go and get a prescription for the abortion pill, which you can just take at home, uh, because so much of that 
misinformation, so much of that stigma, so much of that fear is what leads people to not talk about um, what they're going through, to ask questions about, uh, you know, where they're going to seek this support. And um, so those two things are, are very much intertwined, although they're different kinds of activism. One is more social and then one is more sort of institutional. And maybe for activists, you know, here in Canada, is 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 it helpful to sort of look at what's happening south of the border? Because just, you know, listening to this conversation, you can tell that our issues are not their issues. And so, yes, it, it maybe is a good reminder that rights can go away. But on the other hand, you know, how 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 much does the anger about Roe v. Wade feed into like the issues that we're fighting for up here? Yeah, I mean, if the overturning of Roe v. Wade was the first time someone thought about the fact that their abortion rights could be taken away, then I think it is helpful to look to the South. I think having solidarity with all, you know, pregnant people um, who are, you know, tend to be less supported, more marginalized by our societies and our medical systems is a useful thing. I think understanding that gender diversity and, you know, racial, being racialized in the United States and in Canada are both huge barriers to access. Um, So I, you know, I both don't want people to be fearful because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I think fear actually leads to um, maybe more misinformation, more sort Mm. of Scrambling when we do have systems, we do have organizations, we do have things established in Canada that people can go get in touch with. But at the same time, like let's totally be uh, in solidarity with the people in the United States who are still fighting, uh, even though Roe v. Wade is overturned at their local or state level. There's still work to be done, and we should, we should, you know, be an example. And we, we should. <laughs> I think that's a great place to leave it on. So, uh, Galia, uh, thank you so much for all your time today and uh, good luck with uh, keeping on with the fight. We appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Adam. Great to meet you. Okay. So that was uh, Galia Bravo and uh, obviously be on the lookout for crisis pregnancy centers. They Mm -hmm. may try and trick you, unfortunately. I don't have anything sad since I will never have to worry about being pregnant. So (laughs) I'm doing my part to raise the alarm. (laughs) Well done. Well done. (gasps) All right. That's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. You can stay connected to us at our website, opensourcesguelph.com. You can find us on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. If you would like to listen to our show again, you can download it from our website every Monday. You can get it from the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. You can find me personally on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, and check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Twitter, and Mastodon. And if you're joining us at our normal time on the FM, please stay tuned for Turtle Island Underground coming up next. Yes, that is one of the many great programs that you will hear on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. As for us, we'll return next Thursday at 5 p.m. for another edition of Open Sources, and we will see you right about then.